If you are waiting for the company to like gift you the perfect onboarding, you will never find a job. Like there are no companies that do this well. Like just just almost give that away for a second. Like, there are a couple rare ones who actually do it quite well, but for the most part, they all do it terribly. So just if that's your reality, if your reality is I'm going to be onboarded in a pretty half-assed way, then you could say like, oh, woe is me and this is going to stink or just say like, I'm on, on board myself. You're listening to Oh Shit, I'm the Boss Now with your host, Jackie Koch, the podcast with all the tips and tools to help you succeed when all of a sudden you have the realization that you're the one in charge. Hey, welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined with a guest who is a leadership and management expert, and we dive into lots of different tools and strategies that you can implement into your, really, we talk about like your first 100 days and different things you can start to implement when you find yourself in a leadership role. And so I'm joined by Dave Klein, and I actually started following Dave on LinkedIn and really find a lot of his content so valuable. I often screenshot it to reference later or to share with my clients or friends that I know are going through a hard time with their team or just want to become better bosses. And so I am so grateful that he agreed to come on the show and record with me. I'm going to read his bio so you know a little bit about him and his background. So Dave is an accomplished writer, advisor, and co-founder of the Management Accelerator, a program dedicated to developing system-focused leaders. And with over a decade of experience as the COO of multiple divisions at Bridgewater Associates, the world's largest hedge fund, and a former managing director at Moody's Analytics, Dave brings a wealth of knowledge in building and leading high-performance teams. He holds an MBA from NYU Stern and a BSEE from Becknell University. And I know you're going to find a lot of great nuggets and wisdom that you can go and really implement into your teams. So excited for you to listen in on our combo. Hi, Dave. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. It's so lovely to meet you. I'm stoked to be here. This is going to be fun. Totally. Okay. So I always love a good founder story because I everyone's stories are different, how they ended up doing their own thing and becoming an entrepreneur. Can you share a little bit about yours? Like, I guess I'm specifically curious for you. Was there like a moment in time where you're like, oh, crap, I should be teaching people this stuff or like any like moment that happened that defined your decision to do this as a business? Or was it just kind of a culmination of all of your experience? Interesting. I would have said the culminating moment happened on an apple farm when I was 17. Okay. So my wife and I both grew up in upstate New York and we were both good friends with someone who owned an apple farm. It was lots of kids hanging out. And that's really where our relationship started. And we were friends for eight or nine years. Eventually I moved to the city. She moved to the city. Her apartment was a half a block away and it just seemed like, okay, we're going to do this. But even back in those like teenage days, we would talk about like the businesses that we would respectively own and how we would do all of that. And so it's been that like fire has been there for a long time. My dad was a serial entrepreneur. So I sort of, I saw that my mom was the opposite. She was like corporate through and through for 50 years. And I gravitated towards one, but most of my dad's ventures failed. And so I had this like, oh, I should go get experience. I should go get an engineering degree. I should go into consulting. I should just do a corporate job for a couple of years. And a couple of years became 20 plus. And so as the pandemic sort of forced us all to step back and be like, what's important? What do we want? What do we want to do in this one, this one life that we have? 
I left Bridgewater. We, my wife and I bought a business. Probably that was the biggest unlock for us is like, instead of waiting for that one big, great idea, you could just go buy a business and operate it. And at least if I had done anything else in 20 years, I learned how to operate a business. And then serendipity collided a little bit with that purchase to then lead us to the leadership program we have today. Amazing. That's awesome. I know I always wonder, same on with me as I, I went to school, I got an MBA, I did a corporate job. And it's like, you always feel like you're not ready to do your own thing. You're like, oh, I'm just going to go like back to school or go do this certification or go do this thing. When really you learn most from just like doing the thing. I always say I have an MBA, but I learned way more about business working in startups because you actually have to do it. I don't know. Just something I noticed. I mean, I remember when we bought, so the business we bought was this company called Skill Scouter. It does online education reviews. And I remember sitting there like finger hovering over the wire transfer number and it was, it wouldn't have ruined us, but it was like a real number. And I remember Mar saying, she's like, well, but you don't know SEO and you don't know internet marketing and you don't know ads and you don't know social and you don't know. And I was like, but we'll figure it out. Like I just had this confidence, like we'll figure it out. And we did. And what we figured out was not that business, but the one we do now. But to your point, you just can't get there in theory. You had to get there by getting some data and taking action and iterating and changing. It's honestly because Google crushed the site six weeks after we bought it. I took a course with Saul Hill Bloom on audience building because I was like, oh, we're going to offset our traffic with social. And because I started then writing about leadership and management online, then the companies started to show up. I met the folks from Maven. We built the course instead of teaching at a local university. And so, but none of those signals would have come back to us along the way to guide us if I hadn't been doing something. Yeah, that's so true. So true. Okay. So give listeners a little bit of a, a, an overview of your business and the different things that you offer and how you partner with folks. Sure. The easiest, cheapest, freest way is people tend to follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn. We write every day about that. But once a week, I publish the management playbook. So that's where we get to go a little bit deeper in terms of how do you actually implement some of these ideas. So much of management is theory. Like here's a great framework, or here's a great notion, or here's a pithy quote. And I remember throughout my career, it'd always be frustrating. I'm like, oh, yeah. And then I'd turn around to go do it and be like, but, and, but how in my context and with my specific industry or my specific function. And so that's what we strive to do with that playbook is to not do it in like a cookie cutter way, but to give you sort of, well, if you're in this scenario, here's what you could do, or here's a specific tactic. Like our sort of guiding mantra with the playbook is like just one step. Could you read this and then turn around in your team and take one productive step? Because again, that will hopefully work or it will generate data to tell you how you need to pivot to make it work. And then the people who want to go deeper with us, we have a what we call the management accelerator where we bring together 40 or 50 professionals into a cohort. We teach it both live in person, but we'll also teach it remotely, but it's live. We do eight sort of fundamental concepts that are supporting systematic management. We break people into small groups so they can practice because leaders never get a chance to practice. You're always on, right? It's always game day. Yes. And then we do, yeah. And then we do one-on-one coaching as that as well, because we make this promise to people that we want to break through their biggest management challenge. And while we are relatively confident, we'll hit that topic in either the the big groups or the the smaller groups, the the one-on-one sort of, it rigs the odds in our favor that we can help them get through that. Yeah, for sure. I'd love to know, and if you could give listeners a snidbit into what are kind of the eight, and you can keep them general, but like the eight 
topics or pillars that like a leader needs to do well or needs to focus on when leading a team? Can you share a little preface of it, what you guys teach in that cohort? Yeah, for sure. The arc, it looks like something like this. I think we'll hit all eight pillars. So the, the first one is around self-awareness, that a lot of people who get promoted to be managers or who venture out to start their own company and wake up one day and are managing people, they have been these high achieving doers. They have been rewarded for their excellence in terms of their individual output. Now they have to lead other people. And so part of it is, can you be more self-aware of what you're like and how you impact people, both positively and negatively? Sometimes your strengths overshadow people. And so can we raise their self-awareness? That then sets the foundation for the next one, which is around coaching and developing other people. So can you assess them clearly? So sort of have that picture. Can you come up with a, a plan to develop them? And then as they're developing, like, can you give them feedback that fuels them forward versus knocks them? Then we get into the work and I'll, I'll go through it quickly, but it's, you, you've got to sort of set a, a mission and goals. You've got to break that down into clear expectations. You got to delegate the work to get it in people's hands. You've got to be able to oversee that work in sort of a Goldilocks, like, I'm not micromanaging you way, but I'm not abdicating my responsibilities. You have to problem solve because things will inevitably break. And we then put a kind of tie all that together through a, a module we call aligning your culture to your cadence. So all the way from the values your company holds through the people who should be exhibiting those values down through the specific practices of how those show up, the rituals, the methodologies, the meetings. Then we finish back out with the people where we then go to recruit the new people because inevitably you're going to either grow or you're going to need to replace people. And then we finish with your professional competitive advantage where we, we once again go back to you and say like, well, what kind of leader do you want to be known as? And are all those pieces we just went through, are they aligned to reinforce that brand, to double down on that competitive advantage? Or are you making mistakes along the way that's undermined? Sign me up. That sounds like the best program. It sounds like the complete, I'm going to call it an MBA for launching a business. Like it's the complete playbook. And if you do that right early, like it's so much easier to, I think, I would imagine if you're new and listening to the show and you have a maybe fairly new in your business or you have a smaller team, go through something like that and do all of those things early instead of waiting to your team of 50. I have to imagine it's so much harder to right-size the ship when you're 50 than you're two people. <laughs> yeah, well, it was, honestly, it was a big surprise for us. So that would say that the, when we built the course, and again, this is 15 months ago, but somehow we keep teaching it month after month, either publicly or within companies. We felt we were building it for new managers. Like we thought the sweet spot, the neglected part of the market wasn't the executives, that it was going to be hey, congratulations, you're promoted, good luck. And companies would walk away and like, oh, we could give people those fundamentals. And when we first put the course up, more than half the people coming in had five to 10 plus years experience managing. And we wrote to them and they say, I'm so sorry, I can't let you in. I don't want you to be disappointed. This is like a fundamentals class. And a whole bunch of them pushed back. And we're like, can we talk about it? Like, I've been faking it. I've never had a good manager. I'm still drowning. I'm overwhelmed. I don't have a good system. And so we just decided to run an A-B test. And so we made half the first cohort brand new managers and half experience. And it seemed to work better. And we got more engagement from and higher scores from the experienced managers. And so while we still, we do have a lot of new managers, it really does fit breath. And the second surprise is that 25% of our attendees are founders. That We had definitely didn't see that coming. And it's for exactly the reason you're saying, which is a lot of them tend to be technologists or marketers, but they have one really good competency. And now they've started a company 
And they are also now responsible for general management. And they're like the chief executive or they're a co-founder. And they sort of wake up one day and there's all of a sudden five, 10, 15 people looking to be managed and led and guided. And they're like, holy cow, I don't want to make this system up off the top of my head. And so they're coming in and saying, like, just hand us the, can you give me the like 101 operating system for all the pieces that I can build from? So that's been a pleasant surprise. Well, I think to my experience, even when I was back in corporate at large companies, when you became a manager, almost none of them had training. You just kind of learned on your own. And the only time you got training is if you were a good manager. So like they invested in people who were good managers who never even got training. So it totally makes sense to me why people are like, no, I don't know what I'm doing. Because you think if you've never been in corporate America before that if you these managers get all of this training, just like interview training. Every time I go in and do an interview training, I'll meet with people who've been interviewing for 25 years and they've never had a training. And I'm like, how is this even possible? But I, I'm at the same. It's got to be true for leadership and management. Yeah. And sometimes when I talk to execs, it's almost like hazing. It's like this little weird subconscious thing where it's like, well, I didn't get trained and I figured it out. And therefore, my smart people who I just promoted, they should figure it. And on one hand, I'm like, okay, I, I get that. But like, I just want you to be a ruthless, pragmatic business person and say, like, is that the fastest path to a productive team? And I think like management, like training through hazing is not the fastest path to anything. And that's the reason that the numbers are always consistently 60%. 60% of managers fail in 18 months from brand new managers to CEOs. And the CEOs are armed, right? They have executive coaches and boards and all of this, but they're failing at 60%. The brand newbies are like, it's a hard job. So like, why wouldn't we invest? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Totally. Okay. So when I was preparing for the show, I thought it might be kind of fun for me to give you some symptoms of things that are my clients are struggling with. I guess the first part would be like, is this common that you see with a lot of people? And what's some advice or things that, that they could start to do or maybe look at to fixing it? How does that sound? Does that like sound like a fun game? It does sound like a fun game. We'll give it a shot. I might we'll end up asking shot. you a few questions to sort of almost like role play it, but let's see if we can do fair. it. Fair, 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 fair. Okay. So a lot of my clients right now have transitioned from being in, just like everyone in the country, in the world, an in-person office into remote work, right? And they are struggling right now so much with getting everyone on the same page and having everybody move in the the right direction, having goals and even just like whether I don't know if it's necessary OKRs like rolling down from the top down, but just having everyone rolling in the same direction. And so what it's leading to is teams that kind of lack ownership and employees who lack ownership. And what I hear from the CEOs are like, why can't I just hire anybody who can just like do it and just like get it done and own stuff? And I'm like, well, what have you done to help them succeed in that? Right. But that's a common complaint I hear is that nobody wants to work anybody anymore. Nobody wants to take ownership. I just don't think that's true, but I'm curious if that's something that you hear a lot when you work with leaders and founders. Yes. So I do. I certainly hear it. If, if I had someone asking me that, my first question back would be, well, what part of your operating system? your management operating system, have you changed to accommodate the reality of being remote versus being in person? 
And the reason I'd start with that question is because if I, even just for me, I was still at Bridgewater when we went from, we were hundred percent in person. Like we had a very strict, like we were all in Westport, Connecticut. And so to go from that to then, okay, we're all remote all the time was, was a stark change. And the, the thing that became very apparent to me was how lazy a manager I had become. And what I mean by that is I had lots of gaps in my system that I could sort of smooth over them by like popping by someone's desk, by catching them for lunch, by giving some like informal feedback on the way back from a meeting and all of these things. I just took them for granted. And, and I had like implicitly baked them into my system. But when you all of a sudden strip them all out at once, you realize that like those interactions were important. They were part of what allowed people to grow and develop. It, it was like part of what let them know what direction we were rowing and whether they were aligned. And so I had to like, with great intention, put them all back into place on purpose. Like there was no more, when a Zoom meeting ends, it's over. There's no walking back. And so now I have to, okay, what's my ritual for feedback? Can't bump into people in the lunchroom anymore and just remind them that like there's a deadline coming or there's goals. So like what is going to be our way of communicating the playbook so everybody knows what we're actually doing? And so do we move to more of a writing first culture instead of a verbal culture? Things like that. And I think that's usually what catches people off is they're like, they're trying to run the same operating system in a totally different environment. Totally. Okay. You mentioned the word ritual a lot. I'm so, I love that word. Or do you have like a, like core three or five, it doesn't, I, I don't know, core rituals that you feel like everyone in a remote first environment should have? And I, I know the feedback ritual. I would say the first and foremost would be a hundred percent. Like if you look at high performing teams across domains from sports to business to the military, they all have them, right? Sports teams watch game films and the, the military do debriefs and after action reviews and come like Bridgewater did a diagnosis, software companies do retrospectives. Like having a, a specific set of steps and language for how do we look at each other and be really honest about how it went um, is just, it's a hallmark of almost all high-performing cultures. Like I've struggled to find ones that don't have it. And it's not it's not like the reason I use ritual, probably similarly for the reason you do, is it's not like a optional meeting. It's like sacred. We don't end a mission without doing one of these. And we always follow the same process. So I think that's, that's a big one. I think the second one is going to be like, what, and again, it sort of varies by company, but it's like, how do we stay aligned on what the important things are? And so some people that might be OKRs, others that might be goals. I think if you're remote first, it has to be written. We, one of our early clients was on deck uh, and they were a remote first company. So it was kind of cool to learn from them because they had always been remote first and their head of operations said to us, like, it's not real if it's not written. And so that became like part of their culture, which is like, that's fine that the two of you had that conversation, but until you've written it and put it into the notion page or until you put it in Slack for other people to ratify, it doesn't exist. And they sort of held that bar really high. And so I think that's, that becomes an important one for me. I had this one, so this one carried over well, which is like, where does coaching happen as a manager? Like there's feedback and then there is sort of, okay, what is our goal? What is your development goal? Are they aligned or not aligned? What action are you taking to close a specific gap? What are other people telling you? And just giving people like the step outside of the day to talk that through with you, for you to sort of swing your chair to their side of the table. I sort of hold that ritual to be different than feedback, which I think is more like the transaction and driving the work forward. 
One thing I don't know that people would, sorry, my last one would be, I don't know that people think of this as a ritual. So maybe I'm like stretching it a bit. I think when you're remote, you need a scoreboard. Like I think you need a public scoreboard. And so that, that might be provocative and it might not, not make everyone feel comfortable with this idea that like everybody has a number and their number connects to like the mission. Then the numbers should be public. Like we should all be staring at it in the, in a way that allows for mutual accountability, that allows for transparency, a little bit of competitiveness, not cutthroat, but like, yeah, let's all try to win together and like carry our own weight. So I, I, I have those four would be at the top of my list. What do you think I'm missing? Well, to your point, I don't know if this is a ritual and maybe it's like an SOP, but getting very clear on the mediums of communication you're using and what you use them all for. Because another thing that I hear a lot from a lot of my clients is, or I see a lot, I don't even know if I hear it, but like they're still just trying to do email and text messages. And I'm like, that doesn't work. Like establish some like communication parameters or guidelines. And again, I don't know if that's really a ritual, more like an SOP. But I think that ties to the intention. Like I, I had a similar, a company I work with, I was with them for a, a week and it was crazy because it was text, email, Slack, and WhatsApp. And I was like, how do you even deal with that? I was just a guest. And I'm like, this is an overwhelming amount of like stimulus with no seeming rhyme or reason as to who's picking which one for which reason. And what would happen if you guys just said, this is how we, ha- we communicate through one channel or two with very sp- specific purposes? How much would you pick up just through that? Totally. I think it just it comes down to like, to your, like what you said, like the intention. You have to think about stuff because it's not just going to organically create itself like it would in person, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that, I think you hit all of those. And I think those are so critical to, to think about. Have you read the book? I think it's called Rituals for Remote Work. It's a pretty interesting book. There's a bunch of different rituals and it talks about like how even like meetings have to be run different because you d- you miss out on like the social cues that you would get when you're in a person. And like, there's a bunch of cool ones in there. It's a good one. Highly recommend it. There's an interesting, this is a bit of a sidebar, but just in case it's helpful, learning to teach. So we do our program mostly, we, we were remote. And so we went through the Maven Accelerator and part of it was, well, how are you going to create an engaging educational experience with Zoom boxes? And they gave us a lot of like tips and tactics that like, might just be useful because as I was going through it, I'm like, oh, I wish I'd known this when yeah, I was I running love, a team. I would love them. So just like three or four that we use. So one of them is we always start one minute late because there's nothing more annoying than getting in there and like it's just being dead silent for three minutes. When we turn it on, music's gone. So now you might say, cool, that's kind of weird. Uh, now we're doing it for two reasons. One is we ask people their hype songs, so we're using it to connect to somebody in like a very personal way, but we're actually using it to jar their attention from the other stuff. Okay, I have a question first. Yeah. So do you leave everybody in the waiting room for a minute? Okay, got it. Yes, so that way they're queuing up, then they all come in at once. So now I have energy and I have music. And then we just start. There's no, and we start typically with a question that I ask them to put in the poll. So now we're, moving them from passively watching to engage. They have to like, and it's something dumb that everyone can answer. Like, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Or where'd you go this weekend? Or, but you're now activating their brain. And then the last thing that, this is where I think, again, you, to your point of different shape means is what made me think of it, is the attention span starts at three minutes and then it shrinks as you go through the hour. So one of the things that they'd encourage us to do is to constantly change the mode they're in 
in increasingly small intervals. So, yep, you could lecture for the first three minutes, but then you better ask them in a chat or you better have a screen where they can drag something or you better have them have a workbook to put an answer into. And then you bring them back and forth and back. And then you might have someone come off to talk. And then you, and so that's sort of the, if you could bring that same set of ideas, that's what you're up against as a manager. And to be fair, I have an unfair advantage. Like people paid to come to a course. And so they're invested. A lot of times people are like falling into your meeting already in like a begrudgingly space. Yeah. How cool would that be? Imagine starting going back to Bridgewater and if you like started all of your team meetings that way. Yeah. Like, I think it'd be like a fun challenge. Like, how can I make this the coolest meeting you attend today? It's funny. It's one of the reflections I had because I always, it sounds so ridiculous when I say it out loud. Like, I always sort of dreamed of like having meetings that were awesome that started with music, but I never had the courage to do it. And then I was in a medium where I could see the power of it. And I'm like, I would totally do it. I would 100% go back. I would know everyone on my team's favorite song, or I would like, different person the people to put it in like we would like just raise the energy yeah i would totally do it it would be so great like yeah i hope if you're listening to this you do some of that or at least come up with your own hype song or something <laughs> yeah look i was taking a class today and it was like the first five minutes was like dead air and i'm like by five minutes i was oh, yep, i can multitask oh five minutes to like even by one minute you're already multitasking totally and yeah, you, you could watch, wild. you could watch the cameras going off, 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 off. And you're like, you've lost half the room. Great. I have a great, that, that is actually a question I have for you. Do you have opinions on cameras off or cameras on in meetings? It's a hot topic, I think, out there in the universe, at least on LinkedIn it is. I feel like, well, I want to know your opinion before I, I say what I think, but I'm curious, like a team meeting, do you think you're an entirely remote company? Entirely remote. I think I have a bit more of a provocative point of view than most people, which I would be like, they should be on. Now, I feel like there's rare exceptions. And so like, we have kids, like we have lives, like it happens. And so I'm not saying like, could you never, ever, ever, ever. But if I just like stare, like if I just think about my courses, like I could tell you like after the second class, I can tell you who's going to turn their camera on and who's not. So there's, it's not that they took this moment of exception to turn their camera off. Or this one particular meeting because they like pulled an all nighter and they're just like, I don't want to, it's because they're like, no, they're, they're, they're doing something else and they're not fully present. If I were in the shoes though, of like, I'd like to say, I'm not willing to make that stand culturally, which my company, I would be like, we're going to have a meeting. I want the camera on. And part of that's for the signal. Like I want to be able to make, I've invested, I have invested to be able to make eye contact remotely. I have invested to be able to see in a high enough resolution whether you are losing energy or gaining energy, because I want to make the most of our time. I can't do that if your camera's off. I also find it so hard to, especially if you're new, like if you're a new person on the team, it is hard to build rapport and get to know people if their cameras are always off. And I also find when you're in a meeting, you've already lost so much of the social cues of like when you can interrupt or when you can like voice your opinion. That when the cameras are off, people talk over each other so much more than it, when cameras are on. Well, and then depending on how big the meeting is, you came and see who's talking and not talking. My my butt or my end, I'm not even sure which one it is, is as a leader, if you're running meetings in the like again, if you're let's say you're not willing to make that stand and the cameras are predominantly off, I would A ask people, like, is your camera off for like a real reason or is your camera off because this meeting sucks? And that fixed my meetings. Like that's part of the other problem is I think we go back to our earlier conversation of having intentionally recast my operating system. So I'm running all the old meetings now remotely 
many of which are unnecessary or many of which are poorly engaging or many of which are someone's just an observer. And I'm like, come up with new norms. Like if someone's literally an observer, send them the AI transcript they can read in two minutes instead of sitting there 60 minutes, half paying attention. I guess we're kind of coming up on time. I feel like I want to pick your ring on so many other things, but do you have any you like, final one? words? You can do another scenario. Okay. Oh, what would be another scenario? That was like the biggest one was the ownership thing. Okay. And then, well, I guess another, I don't even know if it's a symptom, but it's just like such little preparation for onboarding new team members, right? It's like, oh, here's your computer. Here's your email login. See you on Zoom in three hours. And then they wonder why their team members are not like getting up to speed and stuff like that. And so I guess that's the brute cause. And then the symptom is people have no idea what they're doing or where to find stuff and all of those things would be another one that definitely comes to mind. I feel like you're teasing me like this is my new course. It is? Totally. I mean, pretty much for the other side of the table. But effectively, the, the thing we're launching at the end of the summer is this idea of your first 100 days leading a new team. But I think a lot of the lessons that like we're targeting leaders, stepping into a new team, how do you like get all the data you need? How do you turn that into your synthesis of like what matters and what doesn't and what problems to solve and which ones to postpone and who's good and who might need to be developed or, or let go, things of that nature. But a lot of the same, that same mental map, that same phasing, I think if I were counseling someone stepping into a new team, it would be the same thing. Like if you are, if you are waiting for the company to like gift you the perfect onboarding, you will never find a job. Like there are no companies that do this well. Like just, just almost give that away for a second. Like, there are a couple rare ones who actually do it quite well, but for the most part, they all do it terribly. So just if that's your reality, if your reality is I'm going to be onboarded in a pretty half-assed way, then you could say like, uh, woe is me. And this is going to stink or just say like, I'm on, on board myself. And so, you, you know, so the sort of the, the arc I would give folks is like, okay, well, what data do you, like what information is important and everything from what are the values in the culture of this company to like, what are the big initiatives that are going? How does our team get rewarded? And then move over to the people. Like who are the big players on this? Who are the veterans who can give me counsel? Who are the people I should be like a little nervous about because they're not to be trusted or like you sort of go through. And if you create a map of like, what are all the processes? What are all the projects? What are all the people? and built relationships and got a um, decent fidelity view, then you could say, okay, now how do I go have the most impact? Oh, I got hired as a data analyst. Oh, okay, where are the most important data analytic products? Am I on those? How do I get connected to those? What tool, do we have tools to help me? Do I, have to, do, I have to, do I recommend tools? And I think very quickly, if you just take that proactive stance, you can basically onboard yourself. Well, and you'll get onboarded quicker and People, your manager is going to be like, oh, wow, they're really bought into that. Like, there's just so much power that comes with that, especially because your manager has hired you because they're probably underwater. And so if you're like taking on some of that and immediately relieving some of the stress, it just does so much for just even building the relationship, too. And then if you want the bonus points, you basically have laid out the blueprint for how to properly onboard people that you can give to the company. And if you want the double bonus points, you volunteer yourself to run it because then you have this outsized influence over all the new people who come in. So it's a little self-serving, but like very quickly, you could go from a scenario of like, I'm being poorly onboarded into this company to I've defined how to onboard people into this company to I'm running onboarding for people into this company. And that's a pretty fast ascendancy for a new hire. Yeah, for sure. That's amazing. I'm going to steal that 
We're going to, I definitely want to, we need to connect after the show because I have so many people I want to funnel into that to, to your course when it launches. I can think of at least five people right off hand that awesome. need to come take this. We'd love to have them. Well, any final words or insights to any first-time founders, entrepreneurs who are kind of like having a lot of oh shit moments of like, I have to be the one to do this and, and stuff like that while building a team that we haven't covered that you feel like are super important for them to know? As you said, there were two that came to mind. And so I think one of them is recency bias. Like there was, I traded some social stuff back and forth today. The famous Stephen Covey quote, the main thing is keeping the main thing, the main thing. I think that they're, especially for first-time founders or first-time leaders, you have spent your entire life saying yes. Like you probably got to where you are because you said yes and delivered against that yes more than anybody else. You took on more projects, you went beyond your boundaries, and you've been rewarded for that. And the thing they don't tell you is now your job is to say no. Like your job is to know what the main thing is, to defend it, to make sure that it is like fully optimized, to make sure your people don't lose interest in it, to take friction away from it so it can happen faster and more efficiently. And so that would be one, which is just like, there's so many shiny things, everything, especially when you're the first time through, seems amazing and interesting and inspiring and you want to go chase them all. But when in doubt, just go back to like, am I, I have a factory that produces something and if what my team is doing does not meaningfully contribute to the factory producing it or producing it better, I shouldn't be doing it. So that's one. And then there, the second one's connected, but I think a lot of early leaders and founders skip this and then wish they had them, um, wish they had spent more time on it up front. Even the, like, even Reed Hastings, when he started Netflix, said this. Part of the reason he started Netflix is he's like, the, I forgot the name of his previous company, but he's like, I started it with no thought about what the culture should be. And then I woke up one day and had a culture and didn't know how to change it. So with Netflix, I figured out what the culture was going to be from the get-go, and then we built into it. And I think for early leaders, founders, et cetera, like it's worth taking the time to like sharply codify your culture. Like what are your non-negotiable values? What are the behaviors that show that? Do those rituals we talked about reinforce those behaviors? And it can seem it doesn't have to be a, a six-month shutdown exercise, but like if you're saying like one of our cultural values is integrity, you haven't thought hard enough about it yet. Like you haven't said like with real sharpness, like, well, what type of integrity? We work with this founding team and she had like brought in a co-founder and had to, and they had to part ways. And she said, yeah, but I knew we had articulated the value was integrity and this person didn't have integrity. And so as she described it to me, what she told a story of how she had written a bad deal with a different founder and Instead of going back on her word, she kept the deal. And she was like, I was so far north of fair. And I was like, that's your value of integrity. Like your value of integrity is that we will always be north of fair. And they're in the mental health space. And that's how they think about it with patients. And like when that clicked, now all of a sudden, integrity isn't like being honest or whatever else. It's like, no, you're going you're gonna to go way past the line of what is probably reasonable because that's where we draw the line of fair. I just think investing your time to really go through like, what are yours can make the really meaningful difference to attract the right people, to get them aligned, to advance your mission. So I guess that'd be the other one. And I imagine that's a lot of the work that you do in the course and the cohorts when you get to the culture area. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Awesome. Well, where can listeners find more about the different cohorts and your playbook and this new course coming out? Where can they? I mean, I follow you on LinkedIn. So listeners, he offers really great stuff on LinkedIn if you're on LinkedIn. But where else can they find you? Dave Klein on LinkedIn, D Klein II on Twitter. 
And then, you know, the course is the MGMT Accelerator. So mgmtaccelerator.com. And the, the name of the newsletter is the MGMT Playbook, which you can find from either the social profiles or, or on behalf. Awesome. Well, thanks for all the work you're doing in the world. I think that, you know, so many lives can be changed when small businesses have great work workplaces because small businesses are what power this country. And it's like a ripple effect. If your work life is happy, your home life is happy. So it's like, I, I'm just so grateful that you're doing the work that you're doing to help create that because I think it can be such a ripple. We, we love doing it and getting to work with people at 200,000 person companies and 10 person startups and local small businesses. Like we, we really did try to focus on the fundamentals that apply in all those domains. And it's actually this like one plus one equals three moment. We pull some of them together because they can all borrow lessons from the other domain that is unlocking in their world. So it's pretty fun. All right. Well, thanks for joining us listeners and we will catch you again very soon. Thank you. Are you ready to hire a recruiter to help you in your business? Exciting news for you. That can be me and my team. And we believe that the recruiting industry is due for a major upgrade in its recruiting and fee structures. So we have a completely different model than other recruiters out there. We have transparent pricing and transparent fees. Go check out peopleprinciples.co forward slash recruiting for how you can partner with us and let us do the hiring for you.